Hey America, this is Ian Bell, and you're listening to Opera Box School. Let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to the Opera Box Score podcast for Monday, April 18. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. On this podcast, our guest is British composer Ian Bell. In addition to his symphonic and chamber works, as well as song cycles, he's had great success in England with his two operas, A Harlot's Progress and A Christmas Carol. Plus, his latest opera, In Parenthesis, opens at the Royal Opera House this summer. Now you'll get an inside look at his process. But first, we talk about the news of conductor James Levine's retirement from the Metropolitan Opera. Some are calling it the end of an era. Others are saying he overstayed his welcome. And to what degree did the Met bosses force him out? We've also got this week's opera headlines. Plus, in our Monday evening quarterback segment, co-host Oliver Camacho reviews last weekend's Met in HD broadcast of Roberto Devereux. Did Sandra Radvanovsky pull off the Donizetti Tudor Queen triple play? We are America's talk radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Opera Box Score is right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Thanks again for joining us on the show this week. Opera Box Score is in your ear holes right now. George Cedarquist here along with Tobias Wright. Hello! Dude, I'm on a podcast. You are on a podcast. <laughs> with you and you. Hello, Toby. And it's great to be here. That Aww. would be the lovely voice of Giovanna Jacques. Giovanna Jacques. How- welcome back to the U.S. and welcome back to Chicago, Toby. Thank you. And That's welcome good. back from California. I've been all over the place. Uh, you yeah, have- Nashville, L.A. Yeah. You just gave me coupons for drink tickets to Southwest. <laughs> so you really have been everywhere. Um, the breaking news this week, of course, was that James Levine is stepping down from the podium, as it were, at the Metropolitan Opera House. Giovanna, can you set up this story for us? Absolutely. On April 16th, it was announced that he as you said, is retiring from the Met after a whopping 40 years as Mm. the music director. Um, Originally from Cincinnati, he was actually one of the youngest conductors to start at the Met. He had really quite an impressive career. Uh, He was 33 years old um, when he was appointed principal conductor of the Met in 1972. That is young. That is very young. He's had a lot of health problems in the last few years and has been in and out of the season, has not really been there for the entire thing. He's been wheelchair-bound, right? He's been mm-hmm. wheelchair-bound. Yeah, yeah he, had a, he had a fall, and um, he had a, a wheelchair that allowed him to still conduct, which is actually kind of impressive. Um, and he finally he finally officially announced that he would not be returning uh, next season at all. So he's actually he hasn't been there very very much the past yeah in the last couple years, of years he's really yeah. been absent and that was he something has. when it was announced that he was finally retiring I myself was a little bit surprised because I know that his absence has been a big deal since I think what did you say 2012 2013 yeah that was the first season that he started so it was interesting to me I wondered I I kind of suspected you know. He was expecting to die at the podium. Yeah. You know, and and not in a negative way. I think it was like his baby that he's been with for so long that he was going to go until he couldn't go. So interesting that he is announcing that he will not be coming back anymore. So, Tobias, what is your take? Is is it his time to go? Should he be, you know, on a do not resuscitate order? Or is oh, is there a way that, that we should try and keep him around because he's so integral to the company? Well, I think he's going to have a position there. If what I read was correct, that he's going to have like an emeritus position. Yeah. Um, and so I think he'll still be, you know, 
involved to what extent who knows conduct performances of four operas and work with the company's lindemann young artist program so he'll still be involved and you know the lindemann program was his his baby his his thing that was his creation and that's been um i think why so many people have loved him and what he's done for the met is that he really created um a culture of cultivating young artists and helping them grow and start careers and they had to be the best of the best Mm -hmm. and they had to have the promise that that he was okay with putting on his stage um and the Lindemann program even today you know of course there are those who the singers among us who are like oh politics well of course there's politics but everywhere you go there are politics exactly there are politics at the ryan center there are politics at marilla everywhere everywhere you go and the thing is is though the best of the best get to perform there yeah and we owe that you know to the maestro and i think that's it's cool that he's still going to be involved. Do I think he was forced out? I don't know. Well, let's get to that in one quick second. Okay. What I wanted to get to first was two other ways that James Levine really helped the Met grow. The first was in the quality of the orchestra, mm-hmm. right? Is that, you know, this country has always paled, I think, in comparison to the European houses, the German houses, the Austrian houses, where like these orchestras are absolutely top flight. The Met Opera Orchestra can now join those ranks, and I think that's largely due to James Levine. Mm-hmm. The other way that he really, I think, has moved the Met forward is in the program of 20th century rep. Think about, you know, the Met in some of those early days. I mean, he was the, conducting there under the Volpe administration, right? Under the Rudolf Bing administration as well. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Bing was there in 72. Um, I don't know, but, George. You'll have to tell us. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm <laughs> grasping at straws here. But the repertoire has really entered the 20th century. You know, like they're doing Berg. They're doing uh, Janacek. And, and I think that is largely due to James Levine. Is there any downside to him being on the podium prior to his illness? That were there any problems that we know about? I mean, not that I've ever heard. Uh, of, yeah, not know? that I've ever heard amongst, either. Amongst my friends who have uh, performed there, still do perform there. No, I've never heard anyone speak I'm, negatively about his artistic vision or what he brought to the podium and what he wanted from the music. I mean, you can't make everyone happy, so I'm sure that there were some complaints, but right. they weren't substantial enough to be a popular consent. Um, I do really agree with what you're saying about the orchestras. It's it's such a big deal to have a good orchestra. I mean, I love the Lyrics Orchestra. I think they're mm-hmm. phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Met is, is a little bit of a different ball ballgame, um, but it's it's so... It, it's it's what most of the music is. The singing right. is definitely less in quantity than than the than the orchestral accompaniment. You do get a sense that he desperately wanted to stay at the Met, and that it sounds like, and this is all hearsay, but it sounds like he really kind of had to beg Peter Gelb, who's the general manager, to keep him on in the let's say since his illness. Um, there was a back and forth, I think was it maybe six months ago or eight months ago, when it was like Gelb took Levine to the doctor. The doctor checked him out, said it was fine. We just need to adjust his medication for some sort of Parkinson's-related symptoms, and that's going to get him back on the podium in fine form. They did that. It didn't happen. So um, did he Did he overstay his welcome? In his mind, probably not. Um, and I think, you know... When you add a title, an emeritus title to someone, I think it kind of speaks volumes as to what the situation really is. Because um, if he wanted to retire on his own terms, he would have said goodbye. I'm, you know, I'm going home. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to go drink a beer by a lake. And I, that's clearly not that's, what. That's is, clearly that's your retirement. Well, <laughs> as a redneck from Kansas, I know. Really, I have dude, certain visions please. of retirement, and I don't think they're the same as James Levine. Um, so you kind of wonder about that because he is going to be around and to still be putting his input in. I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I hope it's not a forced retirement. I hope it's not one of those deals where, you know, Kobe Bryant stayed probably three years longer than he should have. And that was unfortunate. There is a sports metaphor here, though, yeah. right? Which is like... No I, one's undefeated against father time. It's true. And I, I feel like coaches... I said that wrong. The only undefeated person is father time. <laughs> you know what? It's the same same point. It was right. just the wording was yeah, a little sorry, off. Because you're a little bit, you know, drunk right now. Wow. 
All right, here we go. The point is, is that coaches want to go out winning a national championship. They want to go out with a victory. And it feels like Levine was a bit of a wounded soldier here. And like, what if he had quit as soon as he got sick? He couldn't have quit before then because he didn't know he was going to get sick, right? Or at least he didn't reveal that. But I feel like his reputation is a little bit tarnished. Don't you, Giovanna? Because he has sort of started to trail off a little bit. Actually, I think that it's admirable that he conducted from a wheelchair. I think it's admirable that he came back at all and didn't just completely step out. I will say, I think that the second he got injured, a lot of other conductors started thinking, ooh, okay, mm. this is my time to step in. Ready there for time. <laughs> yeah. So who, who's, who's in the mix for um, replacing James was, Gian Andrea Noceda, but he just got snatched up by the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C. So they haven't officially announced. There are lots of rumors buzzing around as to who it'll be. Um, But they've brought in so many guest conductors because Maestro Levine has been sick that it'll probably be one of the the recent... Someone with enough experience at the Metropolitan Opera to... Who's well received? Mm-hmm. Probably pretty malleable. That precludes my next question, which was Tobias. Do you think the conductor of the Met should be American? I, you know, I don't. Um, and the reason being because I think the conductor of the Met should be the best conductor possible. And you know, to go back to the sports, I, I the best person should play. Yeah. And I feel Agreed. that way about singers. And you know, we already have mentioned politics um, in this episode, and certainly there will be that involved, but. In my mind, it has to be a person with the right artistic vision uh, for the Metropolitan Opera, someone who's going to mesh well with both the audience and the artist. And I think that's the most important thing. And it does not matter to me where they are from, because as a fan of opera and as a singer, I want it to succeed. Um, so if they're from Timbuktu or they're from California, New York, it doesn't matter to me. It's It has to be the person with the right vision um, to continue to make a wonderful product. Okay. Let us know what you think, uh, who should be next on the list there. You can email us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Before we wrap this up, there is this suspicion that I have um, that Peter Gelb really tried to push the envelope with James Levine and, and tried to get rid of him as soon as he knew about these illnesses. There's no real sort of proof on that necessarily. It seems like kind of a backhanded thing to do, but I think that Gelb can operate on that sort of level. How much merit is there in that argument, Toby? Well, I mean, you look back in the last couple of years and there's almost been the strikes with the unions and there's not a ton of people who are like, man, Gelb's the greatest guy ever to be in charge of the Metropolitan Opera. Of course, their budget is insane. What is it? $300 million a year. So you can afford to do, a, I mean, I hate to say this, and God willing, someday I'll sing it, some great opera houses. Who knows? But I hate to say this. You can afford to make mistakes with a $300 million budget. And I think the growing pains that Gelb has experienced come from the fact that he knows his pockets are deep with that company, and he kind of gets to do whatever the hell he wants to do. Mm. Um. Uh, I don't really know. I I don't know if Gelb, if it was really Gelb trying to get him out of there or what the situation may have been. But Giovanna, what's your take? Yeah. I uh, I don't know, honestly. I I can't I can't say one way or another. I don't know enough about Gelb and his his management to do it. I'm I'm probably in more of a cynical place, just as a general <laughs> human. So I'm gonna jump towards the pushing him out, but I, yeah. I, it's a very unfounded opinion. This just in, the two-minute drill. It's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. At Opera News Magazine, Brian Kello, the veteran features editor, and Diane Silverstein, recently appointed publisher, have been laid off by the Metropolitan Opera Guild effective immediately. The reasons given are cost-cutting, and the dismissals came two days after the annual Opera News Awards Gala. Ricardo Muti, the long-serving music director, left La Scala in 2005 after conducting a concert with the Vienna Philharmonic, and he has not gone back since. Now this summer, the maestro turns 75. La Scala is putting on an exhibition of his life and work, and Muti agreed to attend the opening. 
The board of the Israeli opera has chosen Zach Granite to succeed Hannah Munitz. He's a political operative, a former ministerial advisor, and head of the Israel Museum. Michael Boder, the greatly experienced music director of Copenhagen's Royal Theatre, says he cannot abide the constant pressure to make cuts. Boder, who's 57, says he won't renew his contract, which ends this summer. Croatia has won the 150,000 euro Fedora Award for Best Modern Opera and hasn't even been staged. The winning opera is Kein Licht, with text by the Austrian Nobel laureate Elfriede Jelinek and music by the French composer Philippe Manori. A co-production between the Croatian National Opera and the Paris Opera Comique, it will be staged next year in Paris, Zagreb, and Luxembourg. Jonas Kaufmann was stood up by Angela Giorgio on Sunday's performance of Buccini's Tosca at the Wiener Staatsoper. Kaufmann had just sang a Luce Vanne Stelle and was obliged to encore it. Angela out him by not making her entrance. And that's the two-minute drill. So, Tobias, what uh, what's your hot take on all of that? My favorite? Well, there was a lot, actually. Um, that was a lot of information, yeah. It was a lot of information. It was a good two-minute drill. It was a full two minutes, maybe a little bit more. Was it really? I, I got to tell you, there was a lot there that kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I was like, Pick wait, one. What? Well, I'm going to go first with, because I love drama, with Jonas Kaufman and uh, what was her name? Angela Giorgio. Mm-hmm. Um, not showing up on stage after his, um, after his encore. And I think that's like, it's ridiculous. And so we, we've discussed this on the show before. Opera used to be kind of this deal. It was a social aspect. You go and you might get a little drunk, you eat a little bit, you talk to your friends in the box and that's why they're seated so funky. It's not, you know, and that's how it was supposed to be. And it was a social event. And why did we do encores? Because people were like, Ah, crap. You know what? That sounded really great. I was a little drunk, didn't hear it. Hey, play that again. <laughs> Guys, do it again so we can hear the whole thing. And you know what? That's what it used to be, and that's why opera used to be so fun. It wasn't the three hours in your seat, glue your button, don't talk. Right. You know? And so I think it's awesome that the crowd was like, whoa, that was so great. I want to hear it again. And how petty of her. And you know what? Her her manager or whatever said it was a mistake, and she went back to her dressing room. I call BS, I call shenanigans, because I mean, like, truly, she had already voiced her displeasure with it when it had happened before in a previous performance. So, like, dude, suck it up. Sorry, you have a tenor, you have perhaps the most famous tenor in the world today, and he sang well, and it did sound beautiful. Let him have that moment. That's what opera's supposed to be about. That is what's wonderful about performance. That is brutal to leave him hanging like that. Giovanna. what did he do? I haven't seen this video. Well, you gotta go to YouTube and and watch it, basically. The video's extraordinary. I'll give a really quick, quick, quick recap he says in italian he says he sang it he said non abbiamo le soprano he <gasps> says we don't have a soprano <laughs> and the audience kind of laughed and was like ha, ha, ha where is she and then the music stops and then he stood up and in german addressed the audience and he said you'll have to excuse us there must have been uh, a mistake wow all right yeah. what would you have done me yeah I don't know. That's a great question. What would you have done, George? Honestly, I'll probably never sing. Thank God well I'm not a singer. <laughs> Go to our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, and we'll have a link to the YouTube clip. Giovanna, what's your hot take on the two minute drill? Man, there was so much, and I also kind of zoned out for <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was most Everyone, she by zoned the... out because she was staring at me because she hasn't seen me for five months. <laughs> the love affair continues, mm. Toby. Um, Soon we'll go on our actual first date. Yeah, okay, whatever. (laughs) I don't know when that's going to happen. I'll be there peeping. (laughs) Peeping George. (laughs) Peeping George. I actually was most interested by the, by the, the, this whole thing about the encore. Yeah, it's like, how unprofessional, especially at the, at the, not the, at the, um, yeah, like, that's so, don't do that. Be a human. She was actually the same soprano who at the Met refused to go on it was a Zeffirelli performance of production of Carmen okay I think with the blonde wig mm-hmm. and I think she didn't go on because she didn't want to wear the blonde wig right. and so apparently the wig went on without her I mean it's not the first time that she's been a diva so they that just drives directors up the wall this is why we don't like doing what we do so. <laughs> you don't that's interesting to hear you say it was so well sung it was so well played by the orchestra and so well acted that the audience wanted to see your, as a director, George, they wanted to see your work again. And you don't like that? Always leave want more, baby. Opera class. Sports radio crass. 
This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. The last time a soprano sang the three Donizetti Tudor queens in the same season was in 1975, and that was Beverly Sills. Sandra Rodbanowski now joins that very elite company in having performed these three operas in one season. Saturday's HD broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera was the third opera in this so-called Tudor Queen trilogy, Roberto Devereaux. And having completed this triple queen hat trick, Sandra Rodbanowski established herself as one of the most important singers of our generation, American or otherwise. I've not always been a fan of Sandra Rodbanowski's work. Her voice has always been beautiful. The tone quality is lush and the voice is quite sizable. But I've always had complaints about her phrasing choices and her diction. But putting that aside, I am completely blown away by what Sandra Rodbanowski has accomplished. The Met and HD series has featured Anna Natrepko in the role of Anne Bolin, Joyce DiDonato in the role of Mary Stewart, and has saved the best for last with Sandra Rabinovsky as Queen Elizabeth in Roberto Devereaux, easily the hardest role of these three operas. Donizetti's Queen Elizabeth is most similar in scope and difficulty to its predecessor, Bellini's Norma, and foreshadows other prima donna assoluta roles like Turandot and Aida. That said, Roberto Devereaux is not a very well-known opera and should be. It comes from a composer who had just suffered one of the most difficult periods of his life, having lost his parents, two children who were stillborn, and even his wife, all within the span of two years, leading up to the 1837 premiere of Roberto Devereaux. This opera is filled with rage, grief, and despair. There's barely a joyful moment in it. One is unlikely to leave this show whistling any of its tunes, but that's okay, because you'll probably be crying. I know I was. David McVicker was both the set designer and the stage director for this production, and he deserves much of the credit for its success. The concept for the production was an old device, the play within the play, putting some of the chorus members uh, in the fake audience and allowing the principals to perform to this audience. This was a brilliant idea. Not many people know Roberto Devereaux's music, and it was great to have the onstage audience signal to us, the HD audience, uh, when an important character was entering and how to be enthusiastic after a cabaletta. Period costumes by Moritz Junga did exactly what they were supposed to, establishing hierarchy, giving distance between characters, filling up the transitional music between numbers with the costumes trailing several feet behind the characters and in general, just being ravishing in their detail. I adored the costumes. Mezzo-soprano Alina Garancha was the first principal to make an entrance, and her opening cavatina threatened to steal the show away from Sandra Rabinovsky. It was a tough act to follow. Alina Garancha sang beautifully, even tone, top to bottom, beautiful phrasing, and very, very touching. But then Rabinovsky made her entrance, singing her... Cavatina and Cabaletta, and her massive yet flexible tone with its gleaming high notes and floated pianissimi established her as the queen of this show. It almost felt competitive, and this is something that I really miss in opera, uh, two singers just singing at the top of their ability, which creates a vocal rivalry to go along with the narrative one. Matthew Polanzani was the titular character of Roberto Devereux, uh, the Earl of Essex, I listened to the opening night radio broadcast, and I was concerned that this role might have been a mistake for Polanzani. Perhaps it was just one fock too big for him. But by the time of the HD broadcast, he had definitely figured out how to sing this thing his way. He sang it like a stylist, really emphasizing what he does best, which is intelligent phrasing and sweet, soft singing. Unfortunately, there was one weak link to this otherwise stellar cast, and that would be Marius Kvitschen, who is a fantastic singer and made a great impression earlier this year in The Pearl Fishers. He just was song off the stage. Uh, he's a super handsome guy. He looked great in his costumes. His acting was as good as anybody else's. But next to Radvanovsky and Garancha, he came up short. 
but bonus points for Mariusz for showing that little bit of chest hair through his costume. The Met has done an exemplary job in publicizing this show. Highlights from the dress rehearsal on March 21st can be found on its website and also on YouTube. And they will rebroadcast the HD performance this Wednesday. Let's listen to a little bit of the dress rehearsal. This is the end of the confrontation scene between Roberto Devereaux and Queen Elizabeth in Act One. I know it's been only 180 years, but spoiler alert, at the end of this show, Roberto Devereaux loses his head and Queen Elizabeth is devastated to the point where she abdicates the throne. This is the final scene of the opera. And if you're not going to see Roberto Devereaux, at least check out this last scene. There are many different versions of it on YouTube. I recommend Edita Kuburova and Alexandrina Penachanska. If you can find those, I know I said those very fast. It's an amazing piece of drama, and uh, you know, Bel Canto gets a bad rap for being very nonspecific about how it uses melody to illustrate drama. But in this case, it's a perfect match what Donatetti has done with what happens in this show. And Sandra Rodmanovsky sang her heart out. I, in fact, did leave the theater in tears. If I had been in the opera house itself, I probably would have gone to the ugly cry. So congratulations to David Vicker and Sandra Wabanowski and really the entire production uh, for creating something that was powerful and moving and validates my idea about opera, that if you just do a traditional production, you costume it well, you light it well, and you sing it well, it can be very powerful. This is an opera that deserves to be heard more. Once again, you can see it on Wednesday in the Encore presentation in HD. It'll probably be in PBS in a couple of months. And if it's being presented at an opera house near you, you should go, especially if it's Sandra Radwanowski. Now back to you, George. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. Listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. All right, time to go inside the huddle. Ian Bell is my guest on the show this week. I caught up with him when I was in London, and what a gentleman. Can I just say that? He was so easy to schedule a meeting with so easy to get along with he recorded this interview with me uh in a friend's apartment by the barbican center and we had a total blast i hope you do too sit back relax and enjoy ian bell welcome to the podcast a pleasure to be here we are by the barbican center i can see saint paul's cathedral out the window on this gray day i think mary poppins has just gone past on an umbrella <laughs> birds are being fed 
It's all, it's all good. Give us the 30-second version of how you got into composition um, and what you're working on right now. I could not write anything else but operas, operas, drama, text, stories. It's it's what I was put on this planet to do and to tell. Um, I was very fortunate about 10 years ago to have made the acquaintance very early on in my operatic career with the then up-and-coming soprano Diana Damrau who was just singing tiny coloratura roles at that point. We became fast friends. I started writing songs for her. Songs developed into, culminated in an opera in Vienna. My first opera, A Harlot's Progress, based on the Hogarth pictures. Then my second opera, Christmas Carol, opening in 2014 at the Houston Grand Opera. And then 2016, we had the world premiere of my third opera, in parenthesis, at Welsh National Opera in Covent Garden. You know, this is actually a relatively young art form, right? Opera has been around for... 410 years. Exactly. Uh, and so I'm interested in your take on, like, how has the process of composition changed over those 400 years? Well, I can't speak for Monteverdi <laughs> or, or Perry. Nor should you. No. <laughs> uh, they didn't have computer software that plays back to you what you're writing as you're writing it. In essence, for me, I can only speak for myself, my... My process involves me, when I receive the full draft of the libretto, the full libretto, I like to have the full libretto, I don't like to do it in chunks, because um, I like to know where I'm going from start to finish, so I can plot a proper arc musically, dramatically, harmonically even. Um, so in receipt of the full libretto, I sit at a piano, and I will write an entire vocal draft, start to finish, a vocal line with a harmonic, very basic, almost figured bass basic, uh, accompaniment for the whole piece, then I'll go back over and orchestrate. I don't think that process is all that much different from what the grandmasters would have done in the in the late Renaissance so you and think early Baroque that, period. Yeah, okay. So like Handel, Mozart, Verdi, Strauss, they would have all basically had that same tact. Do you think? Well, I I can't speak for them. Yeah. But What's your guess? What's my your... my guess is that particularly. Things harmonically change when you get to the 18th century classical period. Things harmonically become a lot more complex. The music, the textures, the orchestrations are a lot more complex. But I think if you're going back to the Baroque period, where opera was essentially conceived, the, the, the orchestra, by and large, was a lot lighter. So I, I think that, you, that they had the position where they could have just done done this draft and then very quickly orchestrated it through I think by the, by the time you're getting to Strauss you've got a lot more complex harmonic language and, and I, I, I don't know whether he did the same he might have written in short score which is where you actually write um, a pared down version of what you orchestrally conceive and then you fill out the orchestration I do a very basic uh, vocal score whereby uh, I just have one or two notes in the bass and the vocal line on top. Those notes in the bass given harmonic uh, anchoring, which then may change when the time comes for me to orchestrate. But at that point, they just provide an anchoring uh, as I'm going through the piece that I'll then work through as I orchestrate. Uh, sticking on this question of your process, yeah. I mean, what is one of the biggest challenges that you wrestle with every time you are composing a piece? It's always day one. Day one, um, my husband Michael will always tell you that just the, the eve of starting work on a new opera, particularly, it's like, oh, have I still, have I still, can I still do it? Can I still, can I still do it? A lot of that is to do with the fact that you know that you've got a year ahead of you of working daily, eight hours a day, as opposed to doing a song cycle, concerto, um, smaller scale work. You just have to psych yourself up. So the biggest challenge is that day one when you're just like, and go. You have to avoid any procrastinating. You know, you've, you've already looked over the libretto as, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You know, right, this is when I have to start it. It's, it's breaking yourself in on that day one. And I find that once I get day one over, it, it flies. Mercifully, has so far. But it's day one. It's the day one challenge. It, I think it's similar with stage directors as well, which is what I do, which is the very first day of rehearsal has only one purpose, and that's to get to the second day. Yeah. Because everyone is so terrified yeah. and so nervous, and you're just basically hosting a party, essentially, where everyone's going to have to sing at some point in front of their colleagues and be judged. And, and the composer. And the sometimes. composer as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is, it's just about getting to, to day two. Yeah. Um, 
Do you ever tend to get bogged down at some point once you've no, made that first step? No, I'm, I try to be very disciplined. So I, I have a very structured day, particularly when I'm working on an opera, because I think you have to, you have, because you have to apply yourself for such an extended amount of time. You have to really be structured. So I wake up every morning when I'm writing an opera at seven, go straight to the gym, have breakfast, shower, and I'm behind my desk at 9.30, and I work through till 6.30. I'm very, very fixed on myself. I don't allow anything to encroach into that time or beyond that time. It's I've now garnered or, or, or developed a faith in my process that I know everything will be sorted out if I'm having a tricky moment. I think, how do I want to, for instance, with a Christmas carol, convey the sound of Marley's chains dragging closer to, to, to Ebenezer Scrooge? I know that I'll get that solution. You know, it, it might take some thought or it might need me to just go in the shower and just think of something else. But I know, fortunately enough, that these solutions have come. Uh, let's just keep talking about challenges, but go I want to open this up. Yeah. It's not just challenges for you as a composer, but challenges yeah. for composers in general and challenges that this art form, opera, is facing right now. What do you think we're wrestling with as opera artists, as opera creators? What What is this art form having to fight against or fight for in the future? As a composer... People, most people's conception of a composer is either dead or an old white man. And you're very much alive. Yeah, I try. I try. And I'm only 35. (laughs) So I'm, you know, and I want people to realise that that there are composers of my generation, not that I'm trying to be ageist in any way, but this is for everybody. There are singers directors, conductors, composers in their late 20s, in their mid-20s upwards, involved in this art form, engaged, living, breathing, drinking, whistling their lives around this art form. And if we can let it be known that we exist, I hope that that will open up the art form to an audience who may just think it's for the old or the ultra-wealthy or the old white man when there's it's it's for everybody it's truly for everybody um i also feel that when when you talk about film you don't just say i like film you know we we all like different types of films i like chick flicks historical films you know costume dramas and i like uh thrillers you know taken and things like you know I like a mix of things but there are some films I don't like it's the same with opera you know some people may be besotted by the Handel sound world but not Puccini some may love Puccini or Janacek but not love Mozart and I think we have to let it be known that opera is not just one thing one catch-all that covers everything you may go to Madame Butterfly and it changed your life you may go to Popea and it changed your life I think we have to let it be known that it's a many-fold thing as well just like movies are. Let me ask you about this idea of the pressure on the composer. Uh, in America, yeah. uh, there is a composer, conductor, Matthew O'Quinn. He's doing so well. It's amazing. So he, he just got this commission to be at Los Angeles Opera, right? It's a three-year contract. He is composing. He is conducting. Am I missing anything that he's going to be doing there? Is he a performer? I don't I don't know if he's got a performer. That often comes as the... Three package, Part of but composing, conducting is enough. That's that's plenty. Um, and in getting this this award, this placement, this yeah. this commission, um, I think it was somebody in the LA Times was like, "This guy is the new Strauss, Verdi, and Mozart wrapped into one." What kind of pressure are we putting on him? What kind of pressure are we putting on composers when we give them these commissions and we expect all these results? Don't you think that's like off a, off scale? I hope he's not listening to people saying things like that because I think once that gets in the way of your process, um, that that could be actually they they could be self, creating a self fulfilling prophecy by creating this buzz and this anti buzz. Which, let's be honest, he is doing astounding work and that is an astounding position. And I can only come from a place of just do it, just go for it. Just, just, just do everything. Just make mistakes, just create glory. 
I, in terms of pressure, I think in some, some ways you have to zone out the buzz, the good and the bad. Um, I have an opera that opens in the spring um, in the UK, and I know that there is stuff in the press about it uh, already, uh, and that's two, two months from it opening. Um, but you just, you, you, you do your interviews and you, you just know that they're out there, but you don't, you just have to get your head down. Um, but it seems to me like in the U.S., and I can only speak for the U.S., yeah. that we believe there that the future of American opera is through the composer, that it's not through the director, that it's not through the singer, but that we're expecting composers to be the ones to come up with new stories with new compositions. To me, it feels like the focus, it's not that it's in the wrong place, but that puts, again, it's just this question of pressure. Shouldn't we be expecting a much more like collaborative approach? Well, I th things are form? becoming collaborative. I think with, with the development of Twitter, social media, I've made some phenomenal uh, artistic or forms in phenomenal artistic collaborations. With Dare people. I say, even you and I. <laughs> yes. Right? And, that was, and that was through Anthony Bereze, who's mm -hmm. Opera Southwest, mm -hmm. who I was put in contact with via social media. And now he might be putting on my, a Christmas carol opera mm -hmm. in a couple of years' time, all going well. Um, we have to look at the opera traditions of these different countries. For instance, America has an extremely rich 20th and 21st century opera tradition. You are at the forefront You've created your own American sound, which is astounding, um, it, it, you know, through <clears throat> composers, Karloff, Karloff Floyd, um, through to Jake Keggy, through to John Adams, Nika Muley, that you, you, Missy Mazzoli, David Little, you, 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 there is a real tradition that's going through. And I think part of the concern may be that the tradition is continued and that, that although Missy, Nico and David are all still in their 30s, as far as I know. Um, there might be a, an urgency in that this must carry on. Uh, and that might be what he is, is being put on him. Um, because repertoire and the development of repertoire is, is no doubt on the composer's... That's the composer's responsibility. But no, I don't think opera is... is sole existence is dependent on the composer. It seems to me another challenge that faces the composer is getting a brand new second production of the yes, piece, right? Yes, yeah, like yeah, 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 everybody yeah. wants to do the world premiere. Everybody yeah, wants yeah. to be at the front of the queue, yes, they as do. it were. Uh, I mean, I myself had the, the fortune to direct a brand new production of Nika Muli's Dark Sisters. Yeah. Um, how do you attack that? How do you fight for that to get a brand new production done of one of your pieces? Well, it gets easier the, the more pieces you have out, okay? So if you've had a world premiere, for instance, My Harlot's Progress premiered in Vienna with Diana Damrau, Nathan Gunn and whatnot, and I, I, I'm just so... I still have a big beamer on my face when I think about it all because I just had just a blast and the, the, the audience were just so responsive and lovely and... Oh, it was, it was amazing. I was an essentially an unknown at that point. Well, I was um, three years ago. And what I found is that people, opera houses who, who weren't involved, they need to take some time. They need to distance themselves from the original world premiere because right, everyone wants to have the world premiere. And because I essentially at that time was unknown, we only had that one house doing it. Once the premiere has happened, opera houses, I think, yeah, they, they need some time for there to be some distance. So the piece is no longer just linked to that house. And, and then they come forward. Now, for instance, I have three houses wanting to do a new production of Harlot's Progress. But it took some time because they, they needed to get some distance away from the piece, some distance away from that production and from its affiliation to the house it was premiered in. Um, though by the time A Christmas Carol came out, I already had a second production promised before the premiere. And that was because I was more well-known. Heart's Progress had success. Um, so so it, it, part of it is success. Part of it is who's engaged at the beginning. If there aren't many engaged at the beginning, it means people, they're going to need to take some time for there to be some distance from the piece so they can then call it their own and not just be, oh, yes, that was in Vienna. Hmm. Um, hmm. Also, I think you have to be clever about the forces you're scoring the opera for. Um, if you want a piece to travel, you, you first of all, you will want a title that's recognisable 
to, to an audience um, or, or, or the general management of an opera house will want a title that's recognisable to an audience, ideally, so they can be assured of some level of interest the minute it's announced. Ideally, a piece that's not got too big a cast, um, that's not too long, uh, that the, the orchestra isn't asking for four of every brass instrument. Uh, you know, it's not scored for an orchestra of 97 and a choir of a chorus of 80. Um, you have to be a little bit intelligent about that, but still let it fit what you want to do as a composer. So I don't mean that you have to relinquish all artistic uh, integrity. You have to think, well, if I want a piece to travel, I know that these are things that I might need to bear in mind, which is why A Christmas Carol is so perfect. Um, it's scored for a chamber orchestra of 15, and it's based on Dickens' own one-man version, which Dickens himself, Charles Dickens, used to perform in tours, playing all the roles himself. So it, it made it eminently portable as an opera, no chorus, one tenor and an orchestra, and it's 90 minutes long. There, there are some more um, financial concerns that are interesting and, and make it for, for an opera house to, to then consider. What's one thing that you're really looking forward to that you're working on right now that you're able to talk about that's coming up in the future that is... I've just had confirmed about two or three days ago a concerto for coloratura soprano. I think. I don't know if I'm allowed to say who it's for, but I don't think it will be too much of a stretch for the audience to imagine who that might be for if they just take a look at my biography and see whom I've worked with in the past. So I've got that coming up, which would be great. It's, as an opera composer, or as someone who's written several operas, it's always nice to do a small form of something that lasts 20 minutes, as big as is important. It's not me denigrating the form of concerto, but when you're given a piece that's 20 minutes long to write, as opposed to two hours 10, it's like, oh, that'll only take me three months as opposed to a year. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that because it's very gratifying to, to write a piece and have it ready. Uh, really looking forward to that. I've got a small chamber opera that's coming up in Germany in 2019. Um, that's going to be for solo soprano, um, which I'm desperately looking forward to because I should be working with um, a Dane, an opera singer who's a Dane. And that's why that's giving me a bit of goose, goose pimples because, you know, in opera, I look to my singers as my gods, they're, they're the people who give voice to my music. They're the ones who I need to, I feel so, so protective over my singers, my singers, sorry. <laughs> That's really possessive. Sorry, Nathan. Sorry, yeah. Um, I feel really nurturing of them. And, but also idolise them. That they are my mouthpiece and they are, they're my people. So when I get to work with singers who have been around for 50 years, uh, that, that that just fills me and, and the stories you know uh, for instance in the Harlot's Progress the, the the singer playing the character Mother Needham uh, was um, the Scottish soprano Mary McLaughlin she sung Titania for Benjamin Britten in 1975 that's that's tradition right there that that's that gives that 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 that's quite lovely and to be surrounded by that I look for those opportunities I look to work for those people to work with and for those people. So I can, what, what did you learn from that? What, what did you get from that? What did you glean from that? You know, so the tradition can pass on and um, you've got contact with these people. And I, 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 and I look for those and I've got lots of those opportunities coming up. Looking forward to seeing those pieces when they come out in the next couple of years. Ian Bell, thank you so much for being part of the show with us. Pleasure. Good Call, Bad Call, on Opera Box Score. All right, time to wrap the podcast up here for this week. Good Call, Bad Call, Giovanna, take it away. Do you guys remember the sad, sad year of 1994 when Miss Kathleen Battle was dismissed from the Met Opera for unprofessional behavior? I was just getting into opera at that point. So well, it's, you I were... was three. Oh, my God, get out. But psych! She's coming back. Yeah, yeah. And guess what, what she's she doing? doing? A recital of spirituals. Kathleen Battle, spirituals. Amazing. Is she doing Old Man River? Uh, they haven't released the actual, like... I was so tempted to sing Kathleen... it to my microphone, but then I remembered I had a career I was trying to pursue. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Kathleen Battle, Underground Railroad. 
How cool is that? That's pretty great. That's so, cool. Great. So cool. So 1994, 22 a years. 20, is mm-hmm. that right? My math. Mm-hmm. Math is hard. G-back? Sometimes relationships take time to mend. That's pretty great, though. Tobias Wright, over to um, you. I have a bad call, unfortunately. Sad. Sad news. Uh, Brian Asawa, the countertenor. Uh, died today at 49 years old. Um, if you're not familiar with who he is, he was the first countertenor to win the Met, the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions, um, and also the first countertenor to have an Adler Fellowship with the Maryland program at San Francisco Opera. Uh, he was also the 1993 Richard Tucker Music Foundation uh, recipient of a career grant award. I just think it's kind of sad to see someone who had had a wonderful career. I mean, he'd sung at Covent Garden, La Scala, all these you know wonderful places to see a career. Um, and and in a tragic way at a young age. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for joining us and for listening. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, our programming director is Bill Scholne, and the general manager is Maddie Higgins. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave a comment or a review. You can follow us on the web, Facebook, and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. You can email us at operaboxscore@gmail.com and suggest a Chalk Talk segment. What topic would you like to weigh in on? We're back next week on April 25th at 9 p.m. Central, live on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago, and streaming at wnur.org slash popup. Don't miss our unedited conversation. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to keep the conversation about opera going with your next-door neighbor. 